All right. Hey, all you guys. Welcome. Welcome to the Backyard Professor Sunday Night Fireside Live. We are here to preach the doctrine of truth and revelation and eternity and history. <laughs> How you doing? Hey, I hope everybody had a good week. I am right here, Mark Lambchop. How you doing? Mark, Crispin, Elisa, Galeen, Galleon. Galleen, I'm sorry, I'm mispronouncing your name. Mosia, Tim Rathbone, good to see you. Doug Vincent, welcome. Okay, looks like we've got a few people here. Woohoo! So, tonight we drink to a success. Yeah, baby. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, baby. You got to start the show correctly, right? Drink crystal clear mountain lake water or actually filtered water. Get me whistle operating. So uh, I thought I would take the advice of a good friend of mine, Mike Wagner. Yeah, baby. Are you here, Mike? You better be. You better show up, pal. Yes, fine business operator. Good to see you here too. Also, Mr. Natural. How you doing, Mr. Natural? I like your handle. Okay, so did everybody have a good week? Did you get anything done? Did we get anything accomplished? Did we do some studying? Did we read a book so that I can book review on live? No, I did not. However, I've read most of Mark Twain's Roughing It. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. We're going to talk about Mark Twain's famous trip to Salt Lake City. Yes, Salt Lake City existed back in Twain's day. <laughs> he uh, he had a lot of fun with that, I'll tell you what. He, uh, he probably embellished a little bit. Uh, I don't think things went as well with him and Brigham Young as he was hoping they would. <laughs> and so... Because of the way that uh, oh, Twain wanted to lead the discussion a certain direction with 
politics, and I don't think Brigham Young wanted to go there at all. And so Twain clobbered him in print. <laughs> he got his uh, he got his revenge on it for sure. So I am going to basically what I did. The Twain went with his brother. He was his brother's secretary, actually. His brother was appointed as the uh, secretary of the Nevada Territory, something like that. And uh, Twain said, oh, drats, I'm going to miss you, bro. And his brother said, oh, no, little brother, you're coming with me. I'm appointing you to be my secretary. And within an hour, he was loaded and ready to romp. It was a great adventure for him now. I'm sure he kept notes. I mean, I'm sure he kept track of the, I mean, crime and he crossed the whole country on more or less horse and buggy. So it was a chance for him to take notes, but he actually didn't write it on the spot. He wrote later after he had time to reflect. And so, of course, we get the, uh, the typical wonderful Twain sarcasm and the hilarious <laughs> descriptions of people and his awe at the Rocky Mountains. And you can't help but be in awe as you drive up that, uh, you drive down, actually, you're going south, drive down Interstate 15 and off to your off to your left are those magnificent mountains. And I mean, they begin just right after uh, Idaho ends right down there by Bear Lake and Utah begins and they go all the way to the Ogden Mountains and all the way, all the way down from Logan, Ogden, all the way into Salt Lake. They are pretty fabulous. One of the things that really shocked Twain, he obviously had heard about it, but uh, in the middle of August, you don't see snow on the Mississippi. It's not happening, no. However, <laughs> Twain saw snow <laughs> in Salt Lake. One of the things that marveled, uh, rattled him, I say rattled, I shouldn't say rattled, but one of the things that just really impressed him was the fact that while you were outside uh, doing whatever it was you were doing, you know, carpentry or bricklaying or, you know, trafficking, you know, guiding traffic or whatever, going shopping for your wife's dress. It could snow in the mountains above Salt Lake. I mean, they, they really are quite tall. Twain said some of them were 11, 12, 13,000 feet high. And of course, they came through those mountains to get to Salt Lake. Nowadays, we have Interstate 15, but uh, he said it was amazing because down in the valley, it never rained or snowed or anything. You could just carry on business as usual, and yet the next day you could look up and see this magnificent spectacle of brand new fresh snow on the mountains, and it wasn't cold down in the valley. It was a much more beautiful, habitable spot than he expected. Of course, not when Brigham and the saints got there first. It was a pretty lousy desert. You know, there's that joke that uh, the pioneers are hiking up through the pass 
and they just, they, they've been hiking hard for days and days and Brigham comes up and gets up over the pass and sees his first view out across the Great Salt Lake Valley. And some of his people are close to him and Brigham kind of goes, whew, if ever there is a hell on earth, this is the place. One of the pioneers looked back at everybody and he yelled, you hear that, everybody? This is the place. <laughs> and that is the story of how Salt Lake began. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, Mark Twain had some really cool things. I'm going to I'm going to kind of. Hop, skip, and jump. He begins his account uh, meeting a Mormon immigration, perfectly miserable, about 30 wagons coming through also. And uh, they're men, women, and children. And uh, he describes how unhappy they looked. I mean, they've been traveling for weeks and weeks and weeks. And they had only, Twain and his brother had only been, you know, 10 days. And these folks have been traveling with their oxen and their goats and their goods and their covered wagons for weeks and weeks. And they were exhausted and it was perfectly miserable. So Peter Higgs, good to see you, my brother. Patty Cake, good to see you, dear. Teresa Hitman, nice to see you again. Yeah, looks like everybody's here, plus a whole bunch more. So I'm going to... Uh, in his book, Roughing It, he begins his description. Uh, he goes through several chapters. Chapter 12 is where he starts when he, by the time he gets to Salt Lake, in his memoir, he's in chapter 12. So I'm going to hop, skip, and jump and read a little bit here and read a little bit there. Now, we're going to cover Mark Twain's impressions, but there really is something quite serious that I'm going to share with you out of the uh, out of the Joseph Smith papers. I took the cover off. Uh, where is it? Oh man, I can't find it. Anyway, it's the Joseph Smith papers uh, volume. I don't know what volume it is. It's by Ronald Lesson. This is the administrative records, and it is about the Council of 50 Minutes and what the Council of 50 was up to and why Joseph Smith formed this very secret combination of brethren. And this is the 2016 Intellectual Reserve Copyright. But this thing is huge. I mean, it's, it's wonderful. 700 pages of fabulous information on the Council of 50. And I've got this other, whoa, I've got this other ridiculous book on the Council of the 50 right here. And this is a brand new book, more or less, seriously, uh, 2014 signature books by old What's-His-Nose, forward by Klaus J. Hansen. You remember this one? Oh, Jedediah S. Rogers. Yeah. This is the signature book forward by Klaus J. Hansen, Salt Lake 2014. He talks about the Council of the 50 also. Pretty important stuff. Uh, this was a, oh, this was a very secret 
group of people. They called it eventually uh, what's his nose. Uh, the recording. God, I can't remember anything, man. I'm having a brain fart. Yeah, William Clayton. William Clayton Journals. That's also another really excellent book, man. An Intimate Chronicle, The Journals of William Clayton. This is fantastic primary material. This is edited by George D. Smith because the chick, the, the chicken cowards of the church historian's office did not release this fast enough. And so Signature Books in 1995 released it. And this was one of my shelf breakers. Seriously, th this, this book is almost like a tell-all. It is staggering what Clayton wrote about the secrecy, the secret combinations of polygamy, and the secret combinations of oaths to never reveal anything that was told in the councils or your tongues could get ripped out or your throats cut or who knows what other horrible blood oaths these guys were calling for. But we do now, <laughs> right? Joseph Smith Papers, what a project, man. So to get back to the reality, we're going to begin with some humor first, and then I'm going to share information with you that the church does not want you to know. And they did not want you to know this in Sunday school. Oh, no, 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 no. They didn't tell it to you in primary. No, 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 no. You never heard it in cemetery either. No, I mean seminary. You never heard it there. Uh-uh, not in all four years. I never heard a word of the Council of the Fifty. I didn't even know the Council of Fifty existed when I was an apologist. That's how informed I was. Yeah, but I sure knew the arguments in favor of the Book of Mormon, didn't I? <laughs> uh, church history was not my strong point in my apologetic days. I was too busy defending the apologists' opinions of what the scriptures were, right? So anyway, that's how it works. Hey, Paul Osborne, welcome you, cowboy you. Good to see you here. Oh, it's great to see everybody having fun. Awesome. So... Uh, we have some very interesting information that you will not learn in sacrament meeting either, nor will you learn it in secret gospel doctrine classes that are convened only for the more advanced experts. Neither will you hear about this information in Institute. And we know Institute is completely incapable of talking about much because of the CES letter, right? They don't know diddly squat either. <laughs> Thank you, Jeremy Rummels. Shout out to Jeremy Rummels. Yeah, baby. I've read your CS letter stuff. It's good stuff. I'm sure grateful that I was inspired to quit being an apologist before Jeremy Rummels showed up and destroyed Fair's defense of the book of Abraham. Whoever of you in Fair uh, who was trying to defend the book of Abraham against Jeremy Rummels, my advice is do remain anonymous because you got destroyed. Jeremy Rummel's manhandled the whole group. Yeah, I don't think it would have been Bill Real either. Although I think when Rummel, no, I think Bill had already jumped out anyway. So let's get on with this. That's enough introduction for Pete's sake, man. Anyway, some good stuff. So he's going along, and, and they're entering the valley. They're just outside of Salt Lake, and uh, Twain goes, we changed horses and we took supper with a Mormon destroying angel. Now, this is interesting. 
<laughs> Destroying angels, as I understand it, are Latter-day Saints who are set apart by the church to conduct permanent disappearances of obnoxious citizens. <laughs> as only Twain can put it, right? I had heard a great deal about these Mormon-destroying angels and the dark and bloody deeds they had done. And when I entered this one's house, I had my shutter already. He was getting ready to... Uh, but alas, for all of our romances, he was nothing but a loud, profane, offensive old black guard. That's all he was. Shocks. Why, he was murderous enough, possibly, to fill the bill of a destroyer. But would you have any kind of an angel devoid of dignity? Could you abide an angel in an unclean shirt? and no suspenders? Could you respect an angel with a, a horse laugh? Well, there goes RFM. <laughs> and a swagger like a buccaneer's. <laughs> yeah, some destroying angel this was, right? Well, there were other black guards present, comrades of this one. And there was one person that looked like a gentleman. It was Heber C. Kimball's son. Well-built, tall, Handsome, suave, debonair, charming, perhaps 30. There was a lot of slatternly women flitted hither and thither in a hurry with coffee pots, plates of bread, and other appurtenances to supper. And these were said to be the wives of the angel, or some of them at least. And of course they were, for if they had been hired help, they would not have let an angel from above storm and swear at them as he did, let alone one from the place this one hailed from. <laughs> so this was our first experience with our Western peculiar institution, and it was not very presupposing. We did not tarry long to observe it, however, but we hurried on to the home of the Latter-day Saints, the stronghold of the prophets, the capital of the only absolute monarch in America, Great Salt Lake City. As the night closed in, we took sanctuary in the Salt Lake House and unpacked our baggage. So the destroying angel didn't destroy Mark Twain, thank goodness, because that allowed him to wander through Salt Lake City and give us his impressions. It also allowed him to hole up with the Gentiles, smoke some cigars, and hear some of the juicy gossip about Mormonism polygamy. And then he even got to meet the king himself, Brigham the Young. Yes, this is quite fun. So. Richard Peckjack, good to see you here. Well, chapter 13 now, we had a fine supper. He said the freshest meats and fowls and vegetables, a great variety and as great abundance. We walked about the street some afterward and glanced in at the shops and the stores, and there was fascination in surreptitiously staring at every creature that we supposed was a Mormon. This was a fairyland to us, to all intents and purposes, a land of enchantment and goblins and awful 
mystery. See, this is an Easterner coming west. So we felt a curiosity. <laughs> I love how he puts this. <laughs> we felt a curiosity <laughs> to ask every child how many mothers it had. <laughs> and if it could tell them apart. <laughs> And we experienced a thrill every time a dwelling house door opened and shut as we passed, disclosing a glimpse of human heads and back and shoulders. For we so longed to have a good, satisfying look of the Mormon family in all of its comprehensive ampleness, disposed in the customary concentric rings of its home circle. By and by, the acting governor of the territory introduced us to other Gentiles, and we spent a sociable hour with them. Gentiles are people who are not Mormons. Our fellow passenger, Bemis, took care of himself during this part of the evening and did not make an overpowering success of it either, for he came into our room in the hotel at about 11 o'clock at night, full of cheerfulness and talking loosely, disjointedly, and indiscriminately. And every now and then, tugging out a ragged word by the roots that had more hiccups than syllables in it, this, together with his hanging his coat on the floor on one side of the chair and his vest on the floor on the other side and piling his pants on the floor just in front of the same chair and then contemplating the general result with superstitious awe and finally pronouncing it too many for him and going to bed with his boots on lest he led us to fear that something he had eaten had not agreed with him. <laughs> I love how he puts this. But we knew afterward that it was something he had been drinking. Oh, and I forgot to get the picture of it. I was going to get a picture and show you this. It was the exclusive Mormon refreshment called Valley Tan. And he describes this Valley Tan. Valley Tan, or at least one form of Valley Tan, is a kind of a whiskey, or first cousin to it. It is of Mormon invention and manufactured only in Utah. Tradition says it is made of imported fire and brimstone. If I remember rightly, no public drinking saloons were allowed in the kingdom of Brigham Young and no private drinking permitted among the faithful, except they confined themselves to Valley Tan. Well, next day we strolled about everywhere through the crowds, the broad, straight, level streets, and enjoyed the pleasant strangeness of a city of 15,000 inhabitants with no loafers perceptible in it, and no visible drunkards or noisy people a limpid stream rippling and dancing through every street in place of filthy water, in place of filthy gutter, block after block of trim dwellings built of frame and sunburnt brick, a great thriving orchard and a garden thriving, garden beds and fruit trees, and a grand general air of neatness, repair, thrift, and comfort around and about us and over the whole. 
and everywhere were workshops, factories, and all manner of industries and intent faces. And busy hands were to be seen wherever one looked, and in one's ears was the ceaseless clink of hammers, the buzz of trade, and the contented hum of drums and flywheels. The armorial crest of my own state consisted of two dissolute bears holding up the head of a dead and gone cask between them and making the pertinent remark, united we stand, yeah. divided we fall. It was always too figurative for the author of this book. But the Mormon crest was easy. And it was simple, unostentatious, and it fitted like a glove. It was a representation of a golden beehive, and with all of the bees all at work. He goes on to say that Salt Lake City was healthy, an extremely healthy city. They declared there was only one physician in the place, and he was arrested every week regularly and held to answer under the vagrant act for having no visible means of support. <laughs> they always give you a good substantial article of truth in Salt Lake and good measure and good weight, too. Very often, if you wish to weigh one of their airiest little commonplace statements, you would want the hay scales. <laughs> we saw the tithing house and the lion house. I did not know or remember how many more church and government buildings of various kinds were strewn about with various curious names. We flitted hither and thither and enjoyed every hour. We picked up a great deal of useful information and entertaining nonsense and went to bed at night satisfied. The second day, we made the acquaintance of Mr. Street, since deceased, and we put on white shirts and went and paid a visit to the king. He seemed a quiet, kindly, easy-mannered, dignified, self-possessed old gentleman of 55 or 60. He had a gentle craft in his eye that probably belonged there. He was very simply dressed, and he was just taking off a straw hat as we entered. He talked about Utah. He talked about the Indians and Nevada, and general American matters and questions with our secretary and certain government officials who came with us, but he never paid any attention to me. Notwithstanding, I made several attempts to draw him out on federal politics and his high-handed attitude toward Congress. I thought some of the things I said were rather fine. But he merely looked around at me at distant intervals, something as I have seen a benignant old cat look around to the presence. He put his hand on my head, beamed down on me in an admiring way, and said to my brother, Ah, your child, I presume? Boy or girl? 
<laughs> and that's truly probably one of the most famous parts of his book, Roughing It, right there. Uh, of course, he's ad-libbing. I mean, Twain was as tall, if not taller, than Brigham Young, right? You know, but uh, apparently he couldn't get Brigham to talk politics at all with him. He couldn't uh, get him to say anything much about Congress or anything. So it sort of made him mad. So he got even with him in print, though. He really did. He's not done yet. He really skewers Brigham Young here. I've got to read a couple of these. <laughs> this is fun stuff. Okay, Mr. Street was very, but now I'm in chapter 14 of Roughing It. Mr. Street was very busy with his telegraphic matters. This guy bought a whole bunch of telegraph poles, and they were they were trying to string a telegraph from Salt Lake City down into Nevada, right? And so this businessman had gotten a bunch of telegraph poles, and he had brought them up. And he got several of the Mormons to sign contracts that they would go to work for him and put up these telegraph poles so that he could string the lines and they could connect Salt Lake with Nevada. And these guys signed their contract and all, and then they went loafing around and wouldn't do the work. And this infuriated this guy, and he went to several people in Salt Lake City asking, you know, is there anything, how can I get these guys to work? They're too lazy. They will not do anything uh, that I asked them to with these telegraph poles and setting up the wires that I need to get this done. I mean, I'm a businessman. I'm here on business, and I've legitimately offered these guys fair work with fair wages, and they signed this contract, and they're not doing a dang thing except getting drunk and having fun at night, and during the day, they're sleeping in. What do I do? Well, finally, one of the Gentiles said, well, we'll talk to Brigham Young. So Mr. Street as he tells Mark Twain, went to Brigham Young, and Brigham Young looked over the contracts, and he read through them carefully, and he looked them over, and he said, well, I mean, he said, there's nothing wrong with these contracts. They look legitimate. Uh, so what is the problem? And he said, they will not do the work. And Brigham said, okay, I'm going to be in my office on so-and-so a day at such and such a time. You tell them to park their butts right here at that time. And sure enough, the time came and all of those guys were there in Brigham's office. And he asked him, he goes, so I'm looking over these contracts. You signed this willingness to do the work of your own free will and choice. No one forced you to take this job, right? And they go, well, yeah. And he goes, okay, and you legitimately agreed to do the work for the wages that he said he would give you, correct? And they said, well, yeah. And he said, then I don't care if it makes you poppers. You get your butts out there and you do this job. And they did. And the reason Mr. Street tells Twain this is because he wants to show the impact, the, the real power of Brigham Young, both on the economy, as well as with the politics, as well as with the religion. And so Streeter's story made a huge impression 
on Mark Twain of how much authority Brigham Young commanded, and yet he ignored me. He wouldn't talk politics with me at all, that scoundrel, right? So Twain was just reiterating this story. There, Here is Twain's comment now. There is a batch of governors and judges and other officials here shipped from Washington, and they maintain the semblance of a Republican form of government. But the petrified truth is that Utah is an absolute monarchy and Brigham Young is king. So with the gushing self-sufficiency of youth, Twain says, I was feverish to plunge in headlong and achieve a great reform here in Salt Lake City in Utah until I saw the Mormon women. Then I was touched. My heart was wiser than my head. It warmed toward these poor, ungainly, and pathetically homely creatures, and as I turned to hide the generous moisture in my eyes, I said, no. The man that marries one of them has done an act of Christian charity which entitles him to the kindly applause of mankind, not their harsh censure. And the man that marries 60 of them has done a deed of open-handed generosity so sublime that the nation should stand uncovered in his presence and worship in silence. He <laughs> was pretty crude, wasn't he? Pretty brisk, pretty bluff. So in chapter 15 of Roughing It, Twain goes on to describe some more interesting ideas And you can get some of these stories online, but it's best to read Roughing It yourself because all of the editors of the various stories, I've read like a dozen of them now this week, looking through the Google, you know, Mark Twain and Brigham Young. And uh, most of them just simply copy the same story from Roughing It so you don't get the fullest context. I'm trying to share some of those stories, but I'm trying to add some extra information for you. His description of the country, you can tell genuinely uh, Twain is blown away by the country. <laughs> and who isn't? If you've never been to Utah, seriously, you really are missing some gorgeous country. It really is stunning. It's incredible to drive through those mountains. It is a gorgeous place. It truly is. It is a luscious country for thrilling evening stories about assassinations and intractable Gentiles. I cannot easily conceive of anything more cozy than in the night in Salt Lake City, which we spent in a Gentile den. And we were smoking pipes and listening to tales of how Burton galloped in among the pleading and defenseless Morrisites and shot them down, men and women like so many dogs. And how Bill Hickman, a destroying angel, shot down an Arnold dead for bringing suit against him for a debt. 
and how Porter Rockwell did this and that dreadful thing, and how heedless people have, have often come to Utah and make remarks about Brigham or polygamy or some other sacred matter, and the very next morning at daylight, such parties are sure to be found lying up some back alley contentedly waiting for the hearse. <laughs> Uh, you got to get that jab in, right? The destroying angels, the Danites, yeah. The bodyguards. And the next most interesting thing is to sit and listen to these Gentiles talk about polygamy. Here's where his tongue waxes really powerful. <laughs> With hilarity. <laughs> I'll try to read this. Okay. <laughs> and how some portly old frog of an elder or a bishop marries a girl, likes her, marries her sister, likes her, marries another sister, likes her, takes another, likes her, marries her mother, and likes her, marries her father. <laughs> Grandfather. <laughs> Great-grandfather. <laughs> and then comes back hungry and asks for more. <laughs> He's obviously having a ball here. <laughs> and how the and how the pert young thing of eleven will change will chance to be the favorite wife and her own venerable grandmother have to rank away down toward D4 in their mutual husband's esteem and have to sleep in the kitchen as like as not and how this dreadful sort of thing this hiving together in one foul nest of mothers and daughters, and the making of a young daughter superior to her own mother in rank and authority are things which Mormon wisdom, women submit to because their religion teaches them that the more wives man has on earth and the more children he rears, the higher the price place they will have in the world to come, and the warmer maybe though they do not seem to say anything about that. Well, according to these Gentile friends of ours, Brigham Young, his harem contains 20 or 30 wives. They said that some of them are grown old and gone out of active service, <laughs> but were comfortably housed and cared for in the Henry. <laughs> the lion house, as it is strangely named, along with each wife were her children. Fitly together, the house was perfectly quiet and orderly when the children were still. <laughs> they all took their meals in one room in a happy and home-like sight was pronounced it to be. None of our party got an opportunity to take dinner with Mr. Young, but a Gentile by the name of Johnson professed to have enjoyed a sociable breakfast in the Lion House. He gave a preposterous account of the calling of the roll and other preliminaries and the carnage that ensued when the buck 
wheat pancakes came in, but he embellished rather too much. He said that Mr. Young told him several smart sayings of certain of his two-year-old girls, observing with some pride that for many years he had been the heaviest contributor in that line to one of the Eastern magazines, and then he wanted to show Mr. Johnson one of the pets that had said the last good thing, but he could not find the child. He searched the faces of the children in detail, but could not decide which one it was. <laughs> Finally, he gave up with a sigh, and he said, I thought I would know the little cub again, but I don't. Mr. Johnson said further that Mr. Young observed that life was a sad, sad thing, because the joy of every new marriage a man contracted was so apt to be blighted by the importune funeral of a less recent bride. And Mr. Johnson said that while he and Mr. Young were pleasantly conversing in private, one of Mrs. Young's came in and demanded a breast pin, remarking that she had found out that he had been giving a breast pin to number six. And she, for one, did not propose to let this partiality go on without making a satisfactory amount of trouble about it. And Mr. Young reminded her that there was a stranger present. Mrs. Young said that if the state of things inside the house was not agreeable to the stranger, he could find room outside. Mr. Young promised the breastpin, and she went away. But in a minute or two, another Mrs. Young came in and demanded a breastpin. Mr. Young began a remonstrance, but Mrs. Young cut him out short, and she said, number six had got one, and number 11 was promised one, and it was no use for him to try to impose on her. She hoped he knew her rights. She knew her rights. He gave his promise, and she went. And presently, Three Mrs. Youngs entered in a body and opened on their husband a tempest, a tempest of tears, abuse, and entreaty. They had heard all about number six and number 11 and number 14. Well, three more breast pins were promised. They were hardly gone when nine more Mrs. Youngs filed into the presence, and a new tempest burst forth and raged round about the prophet and his guest. Nine more breast pins were promised. <laughs> oh, that is a specimen, said Mr. Young. You see how it is. You see what a life I lead. A man can't be wise all the time. In a heedless moment, I gave my darling number six excuse my calling her thus. Excuse my calling her thus. As her other name has escaped me for the moment, I gave her a breast pin. It was only worth $25. That is, apparently, that was its whole cost. But it ultimately cost was inevitably bound to be a good deal more. 
You yourself have seen it climb up to $650. And alas, even that is not the end. For I have wives all over this territory of Utah. I have dozens of wives whose numbers even I do not know without looking in the family Bible. <laughs> they are <laughs> they are scattered far and wide among the mountains and the valleys of my realm. And mark you, every solitary one of them will hear of this wretched breast pin. And every last one of them will have one or die. Number six breast pin will cost $2,500 before I see the end of it. And these creatures will compare these pins together. And if one is a shade finer than the others, they will all be thrown on my hands. And I will have to order a new lot to keep the peace in the family. Sir, you probably did not know it. But all the time you were present with my children, your every moment was watched by vigilant servitors of mine. If you had offered the child a dime or a stick of candy or any trifle of any kind, you would have been snatched out of the house instantly, provided it could be done before your gift left your hand. Otherwise, it would be absolutely necessary for you to make an exactly similar gift to all of my children. And knowing by experience the important of the thing, I would have stood by and seen to it myself that you did it, and you did it thoroughly. Once a gentleman gave one of my children a whistle, a veritable invention of Satan, sir, and one which I have an unspeakable horror of. And so would, would I, you, result was going to, if you had 80 or 90 children in your house. But the deed was done. The man gave her a whistle, and he escaped. I knew what the results was going to be, and I thirsted for vengeance. I ordered out a flock of destroying angels, and they hunted the man from the fastness of the Nevada mountains. But they never caught him. I am not cruel, sir. I am not vindicative except when sorely outraged. But if I had caught him, so help me, Joseph Smith, I would have locked him into the nursery till the brats whistled him to death by the slaughtered body of St. Barley Pratt. <laughs> by the slaughtered body of St. Party Pratt, whom God assail, there was never anything on this earth like it. I knew who gave the whistle to the child, but I could not make these jealous mothers believe me. They believed I did it. I did it. That's what they believed. And the result was just what any man of reflection could have foreseen. I had to order a hundred and ten whistles. I think we had a hundred and ten children in the house then, but some of them are off to college now. 
I had to order 110 of those shrieking things, and I wish I may never hear another word if we didn't have to talk on our fingers entirely from that time forth until the children got tired of the whistles. And if ever another man give a whistle to a child of mine, and I get my hands on him, I will hang him higher than Haman. That is the word with the mark on it. Shade of Nephi. You don't know anything about married life. I am rich, and everybody knows it. I am benevolent, and everyone takes advantage of it. I have a strong fatherly instinct, and all the foundlings are foisted on me. Every time a woman wants to do well by her darling good sir, she puzzles her brain to cipher out some scheme for getting it into my hands. Why, sir, a woman came here once with a child of a curious, lifeless sort of complexion, and so had the woman, and swore that the child was mine, and she, my wife, that I had married her at such and such a time and in such and such a place, but she had forgotten her number, and of course I could not remember her name. Well, sir, she called my attention to the fact that the child looked like me. And really, it did seem to resemble me, a common thing in the territory. <laughs> and to cut the story short, <laughs> I put it in my nursery. And she left. And... <laughs> By the ghost of Orson Hyde, when they came to wash the paint off that child, it was an engine. Bless my soul. You don't know anything about married life. It is a perfect dog's life, sir. A perfect dog's life. You can't economize. It isn't possible. I have tried keeping one set of bridal attire for all occasions. But it is of no use. First, you marry a combination of calico and consumption that's as thin as a rail. And next, you'll get a creature that's nothing more than the dropsy in disguise. And then you've got to eke out that bridal dress with an old balloon. That is the way it goes. And think of the wash bill. Excuse these tears. Nine hundred and eighty-four pieces a week. No, sir. There is no such thing as economy in a family like mine. Why, just the one item of cradles. Think of it. Just the one item of cradles. The firmifuge. Soothing syrup teething rings, and Papa's watches for the babies to play with, and things to scratch the furniture with, and Lucifer matches for them to eat, and pieces of glass to cut themselves with. The items of glass alone would support your family. I venture to say, sir, let me scrimp and squeeze all I can. I still can't get ahead. 
as fast as I feel I ought to with my opportunities. Bless you, sir, at a time when I had 72 wives in this house. I groaned under the pressure of keeping thousands of dollars tied up in 72 bedsteads when the money ought to have been out at interest and I just sold out the whole stock or at a sacrifice. And I built a bedstead seven feet long and 96 feet wide. But it was a failure, sir. I could not sleep. It appeared to me that the whole 72 women snored at once. The roar was deafening. And then the danger of it. That was what I was looking at. They would all draw in their breath at once. And you could actually see the walls of the house suck in. And then they would all exhale their breath at once. And you could see the walls swell out and strain and hear the rafters crack. And the shingles grind together. My friend, take an old man's advice. Don't encumber yourself with a large family. Mind, I tell you, don't do it. In a small family and in a small family only, you will find that comfort and that peace of mind, which are the best at last of the blessings this world has to afford us. And for the lack of which, no accumulation of wealth and no acquisition of fame, power, and greatness can ever compensate us. Take my word for it. Ten or eleven wives is all you need. Never go over it. <laughs> I, I mean, wow. <laughs> what a twain dig, huh? That is too good, man. Oh. I still laugh reading that. So anyway, that was kind of Twain's way to get even with Brigham Young for not talking politics with him, you know. <laughs> Twain ended up with the last laugh for sure. Oh, and then, of course, he, uh, he had to discuss the famous Mormon Bible, right? So I'll take a couple of excerpts from his, this is chapter 16 in his book, Roughing It on the Mormon Gold Bible. All men have heard of the Mormon Bible, but few except the elect have seen it, or at least taken the trouble to read it. I brought away a copy from Salt Lake. The book is a curiosity to me. It is such a pretentious affair, and yet so low, so sleepy. Such an insipid mess of inspiration. It is chloroform in print. If Joseph Smith composed this book, the act was a miracle. Keeping awake while he did it was, at any rate. <laughs> if he, according to tradition, merely translated from certain ancient and mysteriously engraved plates of copper, which he declares he found under a stone in an out-of-the-way locality. The work of translating was equally a miracle for the same reason. The book seems to be merely a prosy detail of imaginary history with the Old Testament for a model, followed by a tedious plagiarism of the New Testament. 
The author labored to give his words and phrases the quaint, old-fashioned sound and structure of our own King James translation of the scriptures. And the result is a mongrel, half-natural, but grotesque by the contrast. Whenever he found his speech growing too modern, which was about every sentence or two, <laughs> he labeled in a few such scriptural phrases as exceeding sore, and it came to pass, etc., and made things satisfactory again. And it came to pass was his pet. If he had left that out, his Bible would have only been a pamphlet. Then he goes on about the account, the, the title page, and he quotes it. And he says, hit up is good, that it was hit up. And then he goes through the testimony of the three witnesses. And he says, well, some people have to have a world of evidence before they can come anywhere in the neighborhood of believing anything. But for me, when a man tells me that he has seen the engravings which are upon the plates, and not only that, but an angel was there at the time and saw him see them and probably took his receipt for it, I am very far on the road to conviction, no matter whether I ever heard of that man before or not. And even if I do not know the name of the angel or of his nationality either. <laughs> and then he goes through the testimony of the eight witnesses. And then he describes how first Nephi is a plagiarism of the old Testament. And he gives his account of how he mimicked Noah's Ark and built the ship, and the brothers made merry on the ocean, and he said that was the only good part of the whole story. But then Nephi got all cocky and self-righteous. They bound him up, and then he was loosed by an angel, and so on and so forth. Then he shows how polygamy may be the, in the Mormon religion, and Brigham Young, the best darn polygamy practicer in the world, but the Book of Mormon forbade it in the Book of Jacob. And so the project against polygamy failed, at least the modern Mormon end of it, for Brigham suffers it. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then he talks about the Lamanites, and he talks about the much more grandeur and picturesqueness as seen by these Mormon 12. He talks about Jesus's visit to the new world and blessing the children, and he goes through the book of Ether, and he he goes through the, the various king list and the various wilderness of Achish, the land of Moran, the plains of Agosh, and Ogath and Rama, and the land of Korahor, and the hill Komnor, and the waters of Ripliancum, etc., 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 and then how they all gathered together and they had warfare, and they slaughtered each other over and over and over again, and all of their armaments are talked about, their shields, their breastplates, their swords, their scimitars, their weapons of war, blood, destruction, and death, and how the armies clashed back and forth, and their howlings and their mournings, and the loss of the slain of their people. And then Coriantumr wrote Shiz, and Shiz said, kiss my grits, give me your head. Coriantumr, of course, refused, and so they got back together again and fought to the dual death until only one was left standing.
He says, the Mormon Bible is rather stupid and tiresome to read, but there's nothing vicious in its teaching. Its code of morals is unobjectionable. It is smouched from the New Testament with no credit given. <laughs> so that's his analysis of the Book of Mormon. Oh, so he really did get his digs in on Joseph Smith, on Brigham Young, and on the Book of Mormon. But I want to talk about something a little bit more uh, serious, if you will, in the Joseph Smith papers. And they actually do, this is the, uh, the one I showed you at the beginning, the administrative records of the Council of the 50. The Joseph Smith papers, I'll just tell you about it. I've been reading in it all week. And I've got dozens and dozens of different flaps of stuff that I wanted to read to you, but I don't have time because I had way too much fun with Mark Twain tonight. In essence, the Joseph Smith Papers Project says that the purpose of the Council of the 50, which they took an oath of secrecy about, their secret combination, See, the Book of Mormon talks about the evils of secret combinations, but it's always those other guys. Us, we, we can have secret combinations. We're the righteous ones, right? Just exactly like the Book of Mormon said, these secret combinations back then justified themselves, right? Even though Joseph Smith made it all up, he's involved with the same sort of thing, you know. This council had a few objectives. One of the main objectives of the Council of the Fifty was to help Joseph Smith become president of the United States because they felt that their own rights were constantly violated. And when they proposed to the federal government that they be redressed for the wrongs, etc., the federal government basically shooed them away and said, no, that's up to the state. And that's how the federal government wrote off the Mormons. Well, that offended them deeply. Now, there's no question that uh, the Mormon people were driven out from home to home, and they were persecuted, and they were some of them were killed, many of them. Uh, their women were raped. The men were killed. Uh, mostly their property was stolen. They constantly were harassed, etc. But they set up what they thought was the literal political kingdom of God that was prophesied in Daniel. And so they felt like they wanted to uh, fulfill that biblical prophecy in what we now know is a completely invented book of scripture that was not written back in the day of Nebuchadnezzar, but was written about 200 BC. In other words, it's an invented story by some Jewish writer in the 200 BC era. <laughs> it's not actual history, right? So this pseudepigrapha 
Of course, the early Mormon brethren, with all of their inspiration and revelations from God, wouldn't have known that the book of Daniel is invented, so they took it as literal history, and they desired to fulfill that scripture, right? So they had a huge argument, more of a discussion, and Joseph required, now they called it the Council of 50 because eventually there were 50 of them that joined. And of course, I mean, it didn't happen all at once, but you can basically pretty much tell who was in this council. Would the 12 apostles make it? Of course. <laughs> the 12 apostles and any Mormon who was anybody, men only. Sorry, gals, you know, Joseph Smith patted them on the head and said, look, you have your own government form of government and the, your own form of the kingdom of God in the Relief Society. You guys go do that. We, we're going to take care of the important business. We're going to fulfill the prophecies of the scriptures. We're going to spread this thing worldwide. And all the nations are going to come to us for the law of God. Now, part of the... They were meeting some pretty stiff resistance. So part of the mission of this Council of 50, now they met uh, pretty regularly. It, it wasn't started until 1844. They only had a few months that they functioned uh, before Joseph Smith and Hiram was killed. Um, but they, they were out there. Uh, electioneering for Joseph Smith to become president back in the East. They were trying to talk to Congress and the representatives of the state of uh, Illinois and Missouri and all those people, right? Another function of this Council of the 50 was to go find a place to expand Nauvoo. They weren't intent on abandoning Nauvoo. They wanted to expand Nauvoo, and they looked down to towards Sam Houston in Texas. This was after the War of 1812, you know. Sam Houston was down there, and so they were sending uh, apostles on missions down in Texas to talk with Sam Houston about acquiring a section of land for them to settle. And then they, of course, would help supply Sam Houston with soldiers. And so it was kind of a kind of an attractive, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours type of thing. And they also looked out toward Oregon. Oregon was on the lips of everybody. Everybody was talking about Oregon. The problem with Oregon was Great Britain also had a claim on the Oregon Territory out west. So rather, the the Congress and the government, uh, of course, Joseph Smith and his simplicity and the brethren, of all they were thinking of was just pure power. Oh, this is us. This is going to be ours. And then we can form our own theocracy. And that was the intent, and the Joseph Smith Papers Project admits that. They indicate that. Now, of course, the government, the kingdom of God was open to all. And the actual discussion in the minutes in this book is so fascinating to see how they were trying to work out this problem of what's the relationship 
with this kingdom of God as a political entity and the church of Jesus Christ. Now, they had three non-Mormons on this Council of Fifty. It wasn't just Mormons, because they wanted to uh, say that they had all peoples represented, and they were trying, they tried to keep it hush-hush, but they said, what we want is to start our own constitution, and we're going to write our constitution. Now, at one point, Joseph Smith said the constitution of the United States is a grand thing. It is a wonderful document. It's just not complete enough. And there's a couple of items that we will add in our constitution so that the rights of all men are protected. They had themselves anointed kings. That way they were literal prophets, priests, and kings, not in the temple endowment setting of prophets, priests, and kings, in the fullest political aspect out into the world, they had themselves anointed kings. Now, I say they— mostly the 12 apostles. You see the circularity here. Joseph Smith was anointed king. They all unanimously did so behind closed doors in their secret combination. They were definitely traitors to the American Constitution here. No question. They did not agree with it, so they wanted to... and. The Congress knew that because when Orson Hyde and the Pratts and those people uh, went off to solicit aid in them getting territory in Oregon so that they could form their own group and protect their own rights, the Congress people they were talking to said, well, what we see is Mormons wanting to do this, but have you talked to all the other peoples? I mean, we we don't see Methodists represented here. We don't see the Catholics. We don't see the Indians. We don't see anybody but you Mormons represented in this process. And we are spokespeople for everyone, not just you Mormons. And so that was the downside of their attempt. Their rhetoric, the Mormons, the Mormon rhetoric, the, the ideology now was such that the hook to convince people this theocracy was a good thing as an anti-United States constitutional stance because our constitute, we got away from the combination of church and state. That's why America became America. That's where our Declaration of Independence comes from. That's why we formed a Bill of Rights, because one person had too much power. 
the Mormons approaching this idea of a theocracy said the kingdom will be run by God through the council of the 50. But Joseph Smith is the prophet, priest, and king. And the council of the 50 has agreed that he will be the leader. <laughs> Do you see the circularity? Seriously, what we need. And, you know, I try not to be too skeptical. Uh, but what we need is an outside uh, third party. We, we need a we need a way to break the circularity. The kingdom of God is going to be guided by God through what? Revelation. To who? The head dog, the prophet, priest, and king. Who's that? Joseph Smith. But there's a council who will also help govern. In other words, this is Mormon expansion on steroids to bring in church and state, and one man will run the show. They say it'll be God. Now, our benefit, so far as I've been able to think this through, see, um, I've been trying to, you know, ponder the implications. And the discussion here in this book is the minutes and all. You could see these guys were genuine. They, they really wanted this to work because they felt their rights were being tread upon. And so they wanted to govern themselves. They did not trust the United States government. They were thrown out of Missouri. They lost all their property. The government wouldn't redress that. They And now they're being harangued in Nauvoo. They were clobbered in Kirtland, Ohio. And now they were being followed into Nauvoo again. Same old bullshit, different state. They were... The trick is this, so far as I can tell, and I, I'm open for correction. I'm a, th this will make a this will make a fascinating discussion. <laughs> this book is absolutely wildly beyond anything I've ever read. You won't get any of this in church. This is the stuff they hid from us. I promise. Uh, the whitewashed version just doesn't even begin to cover the complexity of what these guys were doing and what they were doing. Uh, and I know this comes across as just so doggone cynical, and I just can't help it. Where is God? in all this. I, I mean, their claim is this. They claim, they say, look, this is, this is important enough to God 
that he told his prophet Daniel in ancient times about the latter day coming of the kingdom of God here on earth, and it would roll forth and it would consume all the nations. Now, when they were called on for their interpretation of that, they fudged. They basically said, no, 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 no. We, we would allow all nations to worship God any way they wanted, because this is the kingdom of God. It's not the church. The kingdom is a separate entity, and, and it is going to guarantee men all of their rights to worship however they wish, but we're in charge. <laughs> And the church is something completely separate. And you're not going to have to join the church to be into the kingdom of God and have your rights protected. That's the big lie. Because later on they confessed, we don't give a damn about the Constitution. And everybody's going to have to join us under our authority. Who was the ultimate in charge of this kingdom of God? The Quorum of the Twelve. Who was ultimately and secretly anointed as prophets, priests, and kings? Joseph Smith and some of the Twelve. <laughs> and those who were anointed king? Joseph Smith, he was killed a few months later. Brigham Young, who took over. John Taylor, who succeeded Brigham Young. All of the prophets. You think that's a coincidence? I don't. Brigham Young was the king in Deseret in the state of Deseret, out west in his day. They tried like crazy to send delegates over to, they tried to trade with him and all that. It was always on his term or stick it in the mud. He ruled with an iron hand because he had been appointed king. Well, a king rules his way, period. And that's how he did it. He ruled his way, period, see? So this whole, this whole, and it is a mishmash. I'm not sure if they ever worked it out. Uh, I have not had a chance, which is unfortunate. I wanted to. I've been through about a third of this book, and I had a whole bunch of stuff. that Some of these uh, quotes would just scare the living shit right out of me if I read them out loud uh, of what they're saying. Um, see what jurisdiction has this is on page 122 I'll just read this one to give you an example this, this book is loaded with stuff like this in the minutes they say one thing but when it comes right down to brass tacks this is how it'll work so that a man should be protected in his rights now there's the hook to get you convinced to come and jump into the kingdom of God as the Mormon Council of 50 defines and administers it. Whether he choose to make a profession of religion or not, there is a plain difference. 
the kingdom and the nation that will not serve thee. What? That kingdom that God should set up? Not the kingdom that will not serve God. It should combine to break to pieces all other kingdoms. What jurisdiction has the church over the kingdoms of the world? All who will obey the doctrines of the church throw themselves under the jurisdiction of its laws. The church has only jurisdiction over its members, but the kingdom of God has jurisdiction over all the world. But it's only the Mormon church leaders who get to run the kingdom of God. There's your circularity. That's what I'm saying. My my skeptical... Uh, if this is really that important to God, why doesn't he just come down and do it himself? This theme of going through a man. Now, here's our benefit of today. That would break the circularity. If God himself really did come down and was able to establish, hey, uh, by the way, <laughs> I am your creator. I'm God. I'm, you know, I'm the dude with all the power. I can wear whatever I want. Or I can go butt naked. You know, I don't give a flying flip. I can make gold at the snap of my fingers, whatever. I am God. And by the way, here's my kingdom. Come in, come in and enjoy the benefits or don't. That would break the circularity. The idea that it goes through a man as prophet, priest, and king, in this case, Joseph Smith, when he was alive, after he died, in the second case, was Brigham Young. So our advantage is we now have hindsight of almost 200 years. See, Joseph Smith was a con man with the papyri, with this so-called patriarchal priesthood going all the way back to Adam and making sure, of course, that he got in line. And of course, everybody who wanted extra power and authority got in line behind Joseph Smith. You know, the Quorum of the Twelve, the Seventy, yeah, the Church. You know, there's always this separation with the Church firmly on top. And they guarantee the rights of all peoples, unless, of course, you're black or you're a woman, or you're transgender, or whatever. There's always been exceptions. But notice it's always the Mormon men who are in power. There's the crux, right? So it doesn't appear to me to be viable. It's a great ideology. But based on what we know in hindsight, we do now see the utter foibles, the disaster that polygamy was in Joseph's mistake, always carried on in severe secrecy 
from everyone except a few chosen special spirits whom you could bind to you with an oath of death and torture not to tell. And that ended up being, guess who? Those who were elected to what? The Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Again, the power. See how that works. Well, polygamy was just lied about constantly, that secret combination. Well, now this idea of prophet, priest, and king, they deliberately many times said, hey, we've got to quit meeting so often. Someone's going to get suspicious, and we absolutely have to keep this secret. It's always done in secrecy because, of course, they know the world's not going to accept this. That's what pissed off everybody about the Mormons. That's what turned on Joseph Smith about masonry. He saw this potential to expand past the Mormon power into another fuller group of men who had a common ideology, and hopefully he could acquire all of them into this as well. And that's what gave him the power in Freemasonry for a couple of years, right? And then, of course, they ended up defying the Lodge, the Grand Lodge anyway. See, they were always at odds with everybody because they felt they were superior and they ended up lording it over everyone else. Joseph Smith was able to teach doctrines that no one else could because why? He claimed it came from God and that caused the tension. If all of this is so serious, if it's that important to humans, salvation and success and achievement and happiness, the answer is so simple, but it never happens. Where is God? Why doesn't he just finally show up, live among us, and institute his laws? The ultimate king giver, the ultimate law giver, the ultimate giver of actual justice. Now, this is based, of course, on the scriptural uh, descriptions of deity, right? So, I mean, let, let's grant that, okay. If it really was that crucial, there's no way you would leave it into the hands of lesser idiots that you created and allowed to go through the fall of Adam and be just a bunch of asinine doughheads who constantly messed stuff up, right? That would be my opinion. Hold on just a second. He's getting even with me. Hello. No, you're not. Oh. Here's what I want you to do. This is going to blow your mind. What? Okay, write it down right now. Hang on, you guys. RFM has something for me. All right. Okay. Okay. Okay, I'm going to do it right now. Okay. 
Love you too. See you. All right. So my whole point in this is to seriously try to consider the issue that the reality has to be from God. Now, of course, to a Mormon, you go, well, we already accept that. No, you don't. You don't accept that because you're still going through a man. I mean, direct one-on-one. -on -one. That's what I mean. And they say, well, no, that can only be allowed through Joseph Smith. There's your brainwash, right? That's the way it works. So uh, RFM wants me to get my Book of Mormon. Oh, my gosh, that could be a nightmare. I don't even know where my Book of Mormon is. I've got all these magnificent books, and I don't even know if I can get my Book of Mormon. Hang on just one sec. I'll see if I can get my Book of Mormon. Oh, I should keep better track of it. He really wants me to read this out loud. Oh, criminy. I'm going to have to leave the screen again to find my Book of Mormon. I know it's around here somewhere. It's close. Hold on. I'll keep talking so that you can hear me here. I'll, in fact, I'll even do something no one else ever does in a live session. I'll take you to my bookcase myself to find my Book of Mormon. So let's see. All of my books. Now I get to show you what a mess I'm in instead of being such a nice, neat guy. Now, see, there's my Bible. Where's my Book of Mormon? There's all my History of Jesus stuff. RFM says a very important chapter and verse in the Book of Mormon is necessary to read at this time, and I really want to do that, and I'm not going to be able to find my Book of Mormon, which really sucks. The whole idea I'm wanting to put across is that the politics involved with the church, I mean, it's bad enough being a dictator in the spiritual, scriptural stuff, right? But when you try to recombine what our Constitution of the United States separates in order to protect our rights, separate church from state, and then, I probably should just look it up online, huh? Oh, for Pete's sake, I've got to have my Book of Mormon here. This is absolutely idiotic. Hold on. My point is the, the problem with the whole Mormon experiment with the kingdom of God is the absolute silly dictatorship of it all. The idea that... I don't know where my Book of Mormon is. Shows you how much emphasis I put on the Book of Mormon. I don't see it. Do you guys see it? Point it out to me. <laughs> yeah, whatever. I can't even find Royal Skousen's Book of Mormon. Anyway, maybe I'll just have to, maybe I'll just have to tell you the chapter and verse and you read it yourselves. I really don't see my Book of Mormon. That is just idiotic. I've got like three different copies of it, and I truly don't see it. Where, oh, where has my Book of Mormon gone? Oh, where, oh, where can it be? Oh, I sing like an idiot, don't I? Yeah, baby. Hey, you got to admit, this makes for a unique 
live session, doesn't it? Nobody else is going to do this kind of silly stuff except the backyard professor, right? Here, let me show you my whole dang basement. I'm in a complete mess. Hold on. Watch. I'll probably find it among my mystical literature. There's my mystical literature. Hey, at least you guys get to see my library. What the heck? Oh, there's all my... Hey, this is the Wicked Shelf here. There's all my atheist books. Woohoo! Yeah, baby. That's some good, powerful reading. That's enough to make you go bonkers, though. I'm not kidding. Then there's a bunch of my science and oh, stuff on the universe and physics and math. Oh, hey, wait. Here's all of my Bible exegesis. Here's all of my scripture studies and my Greek and Hebrew and German. Will it be here? I oh, my gosh. It is here. Woohoo! All right. I found it. There it is. Wouldn't you know it? I have to put it in my biblical exegesis. Yeah, baby. You got to admit, you know, you never know what to expect with the Backyard Professor Live. Yeah, that's why you love it and you keep coming back, baby. Okay, hold on. Let's get your Book of Mormons. Hopefully you got the hint while I was trying to find mine. It's important enough that I'm going to do this. So you guys probably have already read it. RFM has probably already shared it, but he said he wanted me to read this out loud, and I'm going to because I trust him. This is 2 Nephi 10, verses 11 through 14. So let's take a look. And this land shall be a land of liberty unto the Gentiles shall be blessed upon the land. Oh, wait, sorry. And this land shall be a land of liberty unto the Gentiles, and there shall be no kings upon the land. RFM said this would blow my mind if I read this out loud. There it is, right in the Book of Mormon. Who shall raise up unto the Gentiles? Damn, he's right. This is this is powerful. And I will fortify this land against all other nations. And he that fighteth against Zion shall perish, saith the Lord. For he that raiseth up a king against me shall perish. For I, the Lord, the King of heaven, will be their king. And I will be a light unto them forever that hear my words. And yet these guys anointed each other. Thank you, RFM. You're right. That is the killer verse and contradiction. Thank you for pointing that out to me. Yeah. No kings on the land. So what do they do? Well, Daniel prophesies uh, the kingdom of God and after all, we do have the Melchizedek priesthood. And uh, by the way, uh, we do have our second anointings 
we are special. We are the chosen rulers from the pre-mortal existence. We're the valiant spirits. We didn't sit on the fence. So we probably ought to set ourselves up to be able to run both of the religious side, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and the political side, the kingdom of God. And by the way, <laughs> would you mind if you anointed me king? And they did so against the prophecy in the Book of Mormon that there will be no kings in this land. Yeah, RFM had that right. That's powerful, you know. That That's some tough stuff there. Um, I think that has to be taken into consideration. Oh, come on. Hold on. Yeah, Joe didn't even remember his own fake scripture. Right, Doug Vincent? Or Mike Wagner? Mike Wagner's on. Look it up online on your phone. Yeah, read second. Yeah. Yeah, you guys are good. Thank you. This is why I love doing this because my audience is so well informed and you guys are way sharper than me. I'm just the idiot in front of the camera entertaining you. No, I think the uh, I think the principle is simple. Um, when a man receives too much power in both church and church and state, you end up being a slave. Oh, damn, dudes! They even mention that. They even say in here, hold on. Yeah, here we go. When one man, now I'm going to propose something, even when a body of men get too much power, it always goes to our head. Now you remember, and this is in the Doctrine and Covenants, you know, if a man uh, uses unrighteous dominion, then amen to the priesthood of that man. I think it's in DNC 88, right? either 76 or 88. It's not 89. <laughs> it's been a long time since I've read the DNC. Listen to this. This is page 126 in the Joseph Smith uh, Council of the 50 Joseph Smith Papers. The kingdom of God must have a law as perfect as itself. 500 nothings make but nothing still, which is admitted by all men except the Methodist clergy. You notice their bias, and yet they want everyone to join them. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. His brethren have been opposed, and they want to get from under it. We have as good a right as any other kingdom to form a constitution if we are literal-born subjects of this country. He believes every man will be required to bind himself to his covenants by an oath. He won't go in for this kingdom being a kingdom of slaves. If they are slaves, let them be slaves to the king. Now, that's Joseph Smith's theme. The imagery of slavery to the king of the kingdom of heaven. But 
we know who was anointed king. Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, John Taylor. Because, and it's an unfortunate fact of physical truth at this point, I'm not just trying to be an anti-Mormon arguer here. The plain, simple fact is we have 200 years of hindsight and we cannot trust the humans, even if they're prophets being guided by God, we will end up in slavery. It takes God himself as king to make this work. Not God through a special chosen servant. Forget Doctrine and Covenants section one. Yes, I know it says, whether by me, my own voice, or the voice of my servants, it is the same. Baloney. I don't buy it. It's not happening. So there's the catch-all, isn't it? There's the, there's the difficulty with this whole setup. Where is God in all of this? They keep using that word. They keep testifying that it's him in charge, but he's not here. They are. And we saw how they rule. Brigham Young and Salt Lake demonstrated that, right? So that's the way it is. And yes, Joseph perished shortly after ordaining himself king. The Book of Mormon is true. <laughs> you remember when Gordon B. Hinckley at one time said, oh, brethren, calm down. All is well in Zion. The first thing I thought of was the prophecy in 2 Nephi, where it said in the last days, the evil wicked men in the church will say all is well in Zion when all is not well in Zion. Gordon B. Hinckley fulfilled that Book of Mormon prophecy, and he didn't even recognize it. He didn't even realize it. So we have we live in interesting times, don't we? So my whole point in this is we can have some fun in learning and understanding how others see Mormonism. We ourselves can analyze Mormonism because, quite frankly, we have we have uh, two hundred years of hindsight and analysis. And now the Joseph Smith Papers Project for the last. Oh, what, seven years or so had been kicking, finally kicking out material, thanks in large part to the Tanners who always produced the historical documents, and then Dan Vogel in his early Mormonism and the historical documents in his five-volume set, which is available online. I talked to Vogel last week on the telephone, and he was kind enough to let me know that so that I can now look into those as well. So is his seekers in early Mormonism, and so is his Indian origins. That's some good history that the church used to whitewash and hide, and now it doesn't. It can't anymore. But let me ask a pertinent question, truly. Yes, I know we get gaslit all the time by these clowns in Salt Lake City, but do you really think, honestly, with now that they have hundreds of billions, do you really think the political ideology of modern Mormonism is very much different from Joseph Smith. They own more private property than anyone else in America. They're buying up all the farms and stuff. Do you really think they don't have Joseph Smith's political ideology? They want to be what? Gods. How do you do that? 
You own everything, of course. Well, they can't just say God gave it to us. So they play the stock market tax-free, and they're going to buy the earth. Because after all, you can buy anything in this world for money. Do I have to remind you who taught that sentiment? Doesn't seem like the Mormons care, right? The church leadership is after what? The two things the Book of Mormon tells you not to seek after, power and gain right? We see them seeking it constantly. So, you know, the question is, well, where is the kingdom of God? We know where this kingdom of slavery can come from, but where is this kingdom of God? And that, of course, naturally gets us into the, uh, the discussion, well, where is God, right? So, Fun stuff to ponder and think about. I'll tell you what I'll do if there's interest, if you guys want. Uh, I, I really think it's a fantastic topic that I would be more than happy to carry forward into next week to give you the finer gritty details. If you would like on this Council of the 50, I would like to take the time to read through several of these tabs. It'll give me a chance to reread the first two or 300 pages of this book anyway. Uh, and, and it talks about the martyrdom of Joseph Smith and all that, but it's, it's the two years previous to Joseph Smith's uh, death, the church in their whitewashed version and in fact, they really rarely, seldom even emphasize the King James or, or the uh, the King Follett discourse, right? I mean, even Hinckley tried to dis downplay it. Oh, I don't know that we teach that, you know. And then they turn around and try to defend him. See, this is all sort of a loosey-goosey kind of brainwash coming out in the wash thanks to the public media, isn't it? Yeah. And now I am, I am able to, I am blessed to become part of this in trying to understand and trying to share clarity along with so many of you, my friends and uh, other podcasters, video producers, et cetera, because we not only want clarity, we want truth. And we're fortunate we live in a country that allows us that at this point. But if you would next week, um, I would like to, 100% BYP. Okay, you want you want to mow Sia? You want me the the details of this, and I don't think it'll take me more than just maybe an hour or so to read uh, their context and stuff. Uh, it's mind-boggling, and now especially with Second Nephi 10, 11 through fourteen, you know there will be no king set upon this land under the Gentiles, and yet that is exactly where Joseph Smith went, and Brigham Young, and John Taylor. I mean, it does say this, no kidding. Taylor admitted it in 1881. They all talk about their anointing themselves constantly. I, it's staggering when you really look at the implications. So uh, talk about Master Mahon. So anyway, uh, Mormonism is self-imposed slavery. Very interesting point, Huff Daddy. Yeah, by the way, welcome. Radio Free Mormon, glad you guys got to show up. Richard Cook, good to see you again. I haven't I haven't been paying attention to the comments. Dean Schwank, good to see you. Uh, so uh, that's pretty much it. I've gone almost two hours, 
And I'm very appreciative of everyone attending. Uh, thank you in the audience. Thank you for your generosity and your donations. I, I think this subject of the early Mormon, I mean, the history is enough to keep us going for like crazy, right? But I think this subject of the politics is really kind of spooky. How close they came to pulling this off. Uh, that's, I mean, damn. You got to say, you know, this tells us we really do have to remain vigilant or our freedoms can be sneakily, slowly, step by step taken away through the flourish of spirituality rhetoric. The ideology is magnificent, but men should not be allowed to try to pull this off. If God really thinks it's that valuable, then he knows already that he needs to get here and set it up himself on television in Congress or wherever he decides to set it up, Africa, wherever he wants. I don't care. But God himself needs to do it. But he has to first demonstrate he's actually God, not just some super advanced alien civilization like Daniel C. Peterson believes. So that's a tall order, I think. In other words, the kingdom of God, we're not going to see it anytime soon because God has never shown up. It's always just been us. And that's pretty cynical, but I, I'm just, I'm trying to be, look, I'm trying to be realistic. I want to be spiritual too, right? But you can't just drop the practice. You can't just stop thinking and all of a sudden believes. Russell Nelson just last week, in fact, last Sunday, during my own discussion here, during my own fireside, Russell Nelson went and gave a world youth. And have you seen some of the videos on that? The emphasis in those videos, they're all edited to make the same point over and over and over again. Russell Nelson taught the youth Two major items. One, read approved church literature only. And two, believe. Well, that's why the brethren were always unanimous about saying, well, Joseph Smith should be king. Then Brigham Young says, well, hey, what about the rest of us? And everyone else said, oh, yeah, well, well you guys can be king too. Prophet, priest, and king. And they went ahead and did it. Right? against their own book of scripture, the Book of Mormon. Well, of course, you know, the Book of Mormon is the most correct book, unless, of course, it interferes with our political objectives, and then we can toss it aside as just so much stupid shit to ignore, right? I mean, that seems to be how they approach the subject, right? That's how they did it. So we got to be careful. Anyway, Wow, this has been fun. This this took off in a direction I did not expect. Thank you for all your help and your comments and your emails. Sorry I didn't interact so much with you here on all that, but uh, we have uh, we have some important work to do. And again, I hey Dan Vogel, welcome, bud. Glad to see you here. Uh, Vogel is going to have a book out hopefully soon, someday, uh, within a year, I hope, of just this era, the uh, the Kirtland, uh, Illinois, Ohio time. So hopefully he's got some good. It's going to be 800 pages. It's going to be bigger than this Joseph Smith Papers book. And this thing is absolutely gigantic. I mean, you can see how 
look at the size of my thumb. I mean, you can see it's a thumb. It's huge. It's wonderful. So hopefully Dan Vogel can also help give us some more enlightenment on this. So. All right, you guys. Well, yeah, and then, you know, they call it religious liberty. Well, yeah, as long as you obey your covenants. Well, who gives the covenants? Well, of course, we Mormons, we're the Council of the Twelve. So when you join the kingdom of God, they wanted to give you the impression, no, no, you're not going to be obligated to the church. But if only the church general authorities are in charge of the kingdom, then who do you think they're kidding when they say, oh, no, we won't obligate you to the church? Man, if you believe that, I've got some great seaside property here in Idaho I can sell you for dirt cheap. You can go surfing in your retirement right here in the Rocky Mountains on the seashore, and I'll sell it to you cheap. Hundred million an acre, and that's on sale, guaranteed to make you happy. Come and get it. Right? That would be my approach. Okay. You guys look like you enjoyed yourselves. That's good. That that was my goal. I'm very, I enjoyed myself. It was kind of a double whammy here, uh, kind of fun to do. Uh, and I will, I will carry forward. I've got next week's also. Now, uh, a very dear friend of mine, Barry Richens, has contacted me. And uh, I love talking to him. I taught him twice a week or so. He, he is a man full of wisdom. He's in his 80s, and he's been around the block several times. Uh, he's been on Mormonism Live. Uh, he, has, he has mentioned that another subject that could be extremely valuable to do would be uh, the Book of Mormon and the ideas of uh, the archaeology, the, the actual evidence of, say, metallurgy and smelting, and what that involves, and why we really can't find any evidences of that in America, simply because it just could not have existed, and that is not to speak derogatorily about the native inhabitants of the Americas. That's not the issue. But they simply didn't have the industry over here. And the evidence is the lack of the evidence. And the evidence would have been found if they had. You know, stuff like that. The idea of the horses and tapirs, that's always good for a horse laugh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, man, I'm going to regret that. Backyard professor making a fool of himself. But I do that every week. You know what? I love being fool with my friends because we're having fun. And we're spiraling upward in extra knowledge, right? Clarity, that's what, you know, is that too much to ask for? Clarity, we want to be clear and we want to have actual knowledge. That means we have to see things uh, not only up front, but we have to see behind the scenes. And we're beginning to get peak behind the scenes with this Joseph Smith Papers project texts, which I can say truly give them credit where credit's due. At the same time, there's always this tension of, 
it's about flipping time. Uh, and now that we're beginning to get the actual revelation of the history, uh, it's no surprise you hit it because it's the shame of Mormonism of what your early leaders were trying to pull off. And thank God they didn't, right? That's pretty harsh. I, I agree, it's pretty harsh, but I don't want to be a slave to anybody, not even God. And if that offends God, then come on down and we'll have a discussion about it. If I'm an eternal spirit, an eternal intelligence, and I wasn't created, then I'm nobody's slave. That's Joseph Smith's theology. If that's accurate theology, then nobody has the right to bring up slavery to me because they would say, hell no, not happening, not in my house. I would advise all of you to take that same stance. I do value my freedom and liberty. But I don't mean under the guise of a putative kingdom of God or a putative God who loves freedom and loves to give men their free agency. I mean the real thing. Not through another finite human. No, that is not good enough. And I'm not trying to be rebellious. I'm not trying to be cantankerous, you know. I'm not trying to fight the system. I'm not trying to be wicked and evil and sin because I no longer love God. See, all of that silly noise is irrelevant to me. That That's not what I'm doing at all. Uh-uh. No. But, I mean, the Mormons have to mourn, and so they, in their brainwashed way, they have to attempt to defend their God-given slavery through an institutionalized religion and call it liberty and freedom. Uh, that's just not for the rest of us, that's all. So that's the way that works. Fun stuff, you guys. Okay, now I am at... Uh, I am at... Uh, Two hours. It has been a glorious two hours. I love these Sunday nights with you guys. Thank you so much for sharing them with me, man. I, I hope they're worth it to you guys. I, I do put a lot of effort into this. I appreciate all your support. Moral, physical, financial, uh, phone-wise. <laughs> you know, I love all of you. You're awesome. That's all there is to it. You're not going to be able to argue with me and win, so don't even go there because I am right. This is one instance where the backyard professor is correct. <laughs> so I will plan on seeing guys next week, and we will have uh, uh, we'll develop this a little more. Uh, we'll go into a little bit more detail with the specifics, which is going to shock you. It, it's it's spooky. It's shocking, the way they talk. But then in a bad moment, it slips out and you see their real objective and it takes your breath away. You go, oh, God, I'm glad that failed. You know, I never imagined I'd say this, but Joseph Smith being killed very well could have been the best thing that happened to mankind's freedom. And I really don't mean to be a real jerk in saying that, but seriously, knowing what I know now, man, that could have been the plan. Uh, somewhere he short-circuited. 
truly, and he had to be removed. Now, the Mormons, of course, will say it on the opposite side, but now that the real history, not the whitewash history, is coming out, that that seems to be the tendency to where I'm leaning at this point, and I'm gathering as much evidence as I can to find out, you know, how do I, how do I process this? How do I uh, come to a, a, a what a more realistic understanding, a, a better intellectual grasp, uh, a more spiritually all-encompassing truth? Uh, yeah, it's amazing how elusive all that stuff can be. So that's why we keep working at it. So okay, you guys. I love you. I got to go. Thank you so much. It's been so much fun. And uh, well, thank you, Tammy Johnson. It's good to see you. The last Goonie, I'm glad you made it good. I want to say hi to all of you. I just don't know if I can. Marcus Vele, uh, Doug Vincent, Huff Daddy, The Last Goonie, Patty Cake, Mo Sia. Peace and love to you too, my brother. Fine business operator. Thank you for showing up. We'll talk some more. Clark Abood. Thank you, man. What would be, uh, I will talk about that, Clark Abood, bring it up another time. Uh, that is actually on the agenda. Sincerely, I'm, I'm not even joking. Great question. Great question. He asks, what would be the importance of Amanita muscaria mushrooms with Enoch or spiritual alchemy when it comes to Mormonism? Um, uh, that is actually on my agenda. That That's a great subject. Doug Lyman, thank you. Good to see you. All of you, Richard Petchak, Mr. Natural, Heidi Christensen, thank you. Uh, you have a good week. All of you have a good week, and I'll see you next week. This is me signing off, and thank you for a terrific evening. Fun stuff. We'll do more. Lots more. Mormonism, the gift that keeps on giving, right? Lots to talk about, lots to share, lots to experience together, lots to grow. All right. Hasta la vista, baby.